So as we come to the end of Unusual, we're in uh, this story of Joseph. Anybody here last week just for, uh, let me see what's going on. Anybody just had to be away out of town on business last week? I love that. Nobody's like, no. Uh, but not everybody raised their hand. That was kind of cool. But uh, it, just to catch us up, we're, we're ending Unusual in the story of Joseph. And the sort of 30-second description of Unusual is this, that God is not ordinary, right? God's not run-of-the-mill. God's not just your average you know, lowest common denominator type of God. He's extraordinary in every way, and he lives in us, and we know him, and we're related to him, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And so, therefore, God's always wanting to pull us up to extraordinary. And in a world that always wants us to blend in, everything always seems to homogenize on planet Earth. It might start out as the cool thing from the West Coast or happen a new thing that happened in Europe, but eventually everybody gets on board and we all homogenize again until it changes again, and then we all get on the same page again. And God's saying, your mission in life is not to blend in, it's not to be ordinary, it's not to be mediocre. It's not to settle at the lowest common denominator. Your mission in life is to be pulled up by the power and spirit of God, to be like God, and to be like God on planet Earth is to be unusual in every single way. And that was true of Joseph's life. When we left, it off, when we left off last week, Joseph had become the second in command in Egypt. Now, you remember the pyramids. You remember the, the, the pharaohs, right? Well, Joseph had been raised up by the Pharaoh in Egypt, the most powerful uh, political force on earth at the time, and the Pharaoh had put Joseph as second in command. So the Pharaoh had the last word, but every other word in Egypt, Joseph had. This young man that we saw, 30 years old, when he was put in service to Pharaoh. So a 30-year-old young man, second in command, the most powerful nation in the world. And you're thinking, wow, that's pretty incredible. How did he get there? Well, the way he got there was that Pharaoh had a dream, and no one could interpret the dream. And the cupbearer, who had been put down in prison because Pharaoh didn't like him, remembered there was a guy down there. Remember that part of the story last week? There's a guy down there that interprets dreams. And I was supposed to remember him when I got back up here in your good graces because he helped me with a dream I had when I was in the prison. And he, he said, I'll go get him. They get Joseph. They bring him up. And he interprets the Pharaoh's dream. And the Pharaoh's blown away by the interpretation. He says, I can't believe that you understand this. You've got greater wisdom than anybody else in Egypt. I'm going to put you in charge of everything I've got. And at that point, you're like, man, things are going good for Joseph. He's 30 years old, and he's second in command in the most powerful nation on planet Earth. That's a good place to be, right? But you're like, no, because I was here last week, and it was a really, really hard journey for Joseph to get to that point, and even being at that point wasn't maybe the place he always dreamed he would be. I'll try to catch us up. A few of you don't know who Joseph is, so I'll try to catch us up all the way to that part, and then we'll jump into tonight. Are you ready? It would be awesome, by the way, since we're closing unusual, wouldn't it, if we had a flannel board just one more time, if we just could just do one more. Wouldn't that be cool if we just had that one, one more time, you know? Oh, my goodness, look what we got here. I love it. I, I love it. It's applause for a flannel board. That, that's pretty incredible. The flannel board, we couldn't do without it. I mean, you can't not have it. Once you've had it, you just can't do without it. It's like having an iPhone. Once you got one, you're done, you know? And now I have a feeling every series, we're going to have to bring the flannel board out. Look, it's life in one dimension. Come on. Look, this guy's got a camera out. He's taking a photo of the flannel board. Because people have never seen one before. Now, all you kids that are here, all these people down here, they've never, ever even seen this. They don't know what this is. The older people here are like, uh-huh, I know what you're talking about. There was a day, check this out, you won't believe this. We used to walk to school in the snow. And before that, before that, before that... There was no veggie tails. Can you imagine growing up in church without veggie tails? What did the Sunday school teachers do? I mean, come on. I think we need to rewind the tape and bring all the old Bible study Sunday school leaders out and give them a round of applause. They didn't have a DVD player. They didn't have any veggie tails. They didn't have any anything. All they had was a flannel board. Look, kids, it's all of Joseph's brothers. And all the kids are like. <laughs> now, I just want to tip you off on a little secret because flannel board went away. We're trying to bring it back. 
But bringing it back, it, it needs a little work to be brought back, quite frankly, because the people who are doing all the flannel board don't have the skill and ingenuity of all these young artists at Passion City Church that I see around. Just take a close look at some of these guys, and you're going to see the same guys in every single story <laughs> in the Bible. See that guy right there? Jesus. See him? Don't you see it? One of Joseph's brothers right here, but later on, wise men. In this story, somebody else. You know, it's kind of like the interchangeable, and the kids weren't maybe smart enough to know. Oh, those are the, wait a minute. Those are the same people we saw in the other story. But just to catch you up, Joseph's brothers were out attending the flock in Shechem. You remember that part? And then they'd moved on to Dothan. So they'd gone down into Alabama. They pitched their tents there <laughs> at a big tree, and they're out there with the flock. And Jacob, Jacob now, in case you just didn't know, he, the father of our faith, Abraham, had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son and gave the blessing to Jacob. Jacob was the father of many sons, and these are his sons. They're, they're not the smartest crop in the world, and they're not the best crop in the world, but that's what he's got. And they're out in the field, and, and Jacob decides to send uh, his son, who's still back at the house, out to check on the brothers. Now, Jacob looks like a patriarch of the faith, doesn't he? He's got a tablecloth on his head and the whole thing going on. And check out the little wedge shoes. That's a new twist uh, that's just coming back now. Um, can you get close up on the wedge shoes? I don't know if you can or not, but those are really pretty awesome. And so he had another son that didn't go out into the field. And that son, as you know, was Joseph, the sort of central character in our story. And he loved Joseph. Joseph had a dream that his brothers were going to bow down to him. And he told them that dream. and They hated him for it. Joseph also, on another occasion when he was out checking on his brothers, found his brothers in all kind of mischief and came back and told his dad on him, and they hated him for that. And they probably knew that at the end of the day, all the favor and maybe all the family fortunes going to this kid anyway. So there's a lot of animosity building up. We know that Jacob loved Joseph. Why? Because he made for him a what? He made what for him? A coat of many colors. Isn't that awesome how that works? Try that in a DVD. <laughs> and so he made a coat of many colors, and he sent Joseph off to check on the brothers. And Joseph went, and he found them to say, hey, guys, how you doing? Dad has sent me out here. But when the brothers saw Joseph coming, their animosity really was in full rage. What they were thinking is what sometimes we're thinking. And I know that uh, it's hard for some of you younger people to get your heads around this, but I know there's a lot of angst in you too. But imagine letting that angst boil for maybe 10 or 15 years. And by the time Joseph got there, they'd pretty much come to this conclusion. He's dad's favorite. He got the coat of many colors. He's the one dad loves the most. He's probably going to get the house. He's probably going to get the, the place in Colorado. He's probably going to get the lion's share of the inheritance. And at the end of the day, we're going to be standing around going, wow, thank you very much, Joseph. You think you could give us a little lunch money or something? Because he's the one who's going to end up with everything at the end of the day. And they somehow had gotten so bent out of shape about it that they started talking amongst themselves. When they saw him coming, they said, hey, this is our chance. This is our chance. We're way off in the middle of nowhere. Here he comes by himself. We'll take him and kill him, and we'll take his coat, we'll shred it up, we'll put the blood of an animal on it, we'll go back to Dad and say, hey, Dad, we found this coat on the side of the road. Does this look like something that you've seen before? Is this Joseph's coat? And we'll pretend like we didn't know anything was going on. Dad will think an animal killed him, and then we'll be great. No one will know we did it. He'll be out of the picture, and everything will work fine from there on out. But one of the brothers, Reuben, said, hey, I got a plan. Maybe we don't have to kill him, guys. Let's think of something else. And, and sure enough, another one of the brothers named Judah said, I know what the plan will be. We will uh, we'll sell him. And so the first thing they do is they put him down in a pit. And so here's the pit. It was an empty well, and that's all they gave me. You know, you just work with what you got, and um, that's it. So that's the whole well. There's a little rope coming out that you can barely see that I guess goes down to the bucket, but it's a dry well, we know from the story. And they, they stripped off the coat of many colors, and, um, and they put him in the well. And then they had a brilliant plan. They saw these gypsies coming by who looked like the wise men. And when the gypsies were coming by, 
Judah said, one of his brothers, let's just sell him to the gypsies. See, that way we don't have to go away knowing he's withering away down in this empty well on the ground and have all that on our conscience. Let's just sell him to the gypsies. We'll make money. He'll still be alive, and at least, you know, it'll work out a little bit better for him. And so they do. They, they get him up out, out of the well, and they say to the gypsies, hey, look, here's our brother. He's pretty amazing, right? Look at Joseph. Would you like to buy him? And they say, yeah, we'll buy him. And so off he goes with the gypsies, and the gypsies take him uh, into Egypt. And as he goes down into Egypt, the gypsies decide to do the same thing that the brothers did. They said, hey, we can resell him and make a profit on what we paid for him. So there was a great demand for servants in Egypt. Egypt was a booming economy. It went down to, uh, to Egypt, and a guy named Potiphar, who was in the command uh, of the army of the guard, bought Joseph to be his servant. But you know what we discovered last week? This was one of the most powerful things of all in this whole series, and it is very unusual, that even though Joseph had been betrayed by his brother, stabbed in the back, put in a hole, almost killed, sold out to gypsies, resold to a guy named Potiphar, that what the scripture said about him was that the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, and he blessed him. And because he blessed him, he blessed Potiphar and the whole house. Everybody got blessed because of Joseph and the favor of God that was on his life. And guess what? He got elevated to be the second in command in Potiphar's house. In other words, Potiphar said, everything I got, you're in charge of. And so one day, um, as the story unfolds, um, it turns out Potiphar's away, but Potiphar's wife sees Joseph coming. And she's kind of got a thing for Joseph, and he apparently is young and handsome and, and all that business. And so she decides that she's going to do something crazy. So this is Potiphar's house, by the way, just a little scene here. In case you're uh, pl- following along at home, this looks like the same table that was in that Daniel story with the same ham on it or turkey or whatever it is. Uh, and it is the same one, I think. They just uh, interchange them from story to story. But we've got a little vase over here to let you know this is Potiphar's house now. And we always have to have a window so that you know kind of where, what's going on, right? This is the window. You might remember where these guys that were trying to bust Daniel came and peered in the window. Remember those guys? That's pretty awesome. Remember them? Same guys, you know? Remember those guys? Well, uh, those guys are not with us anymore. But, um, but we do want you to know you're in Egypt now and not over here uh, with these guys. And so we got a little pyramids out here in the window so you can kind of see what's going on. So welcome to Egypt, everybody. And so Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. This guy's been dropped in a hole, sold twice. And from the best years of his life, he's just been robbed of everything. And now this woman of power and influence and possibly beauty is uh, saying, come on. And his response is so amazing. Where a lot of people bail out on God because the bottom dropped out and they say, well, forget you. He is faithful because he knows God's still with him. And he says to Potiphar's wife, I'm in charge of this whole house. Everything here I'm in charge of except you. And you're his wife. So I'm certainly not going to break that trust because that's the only thing I can't do in Potiphar's house is have you. And so I'm going to honor my master, I'm going to honor God, I'm going to honor Potiphar, and so thank you, but no thank you. And she was not happy with that response, and so the next time she came around, he came around, she grabbed Joseph, she ripped off part of his clothes, and then as he took off and bolted to run away, she ran behind him saying, hey, that Hebrew you brought here, he tried to take advantage of me. She's going to put him in his place, right? So Potiphar comes home. He hears the story, everything goes crazy, and the whole thing goes crashing down, and Joseph ends up down in the jail. Potiphar puts him down in the jail. He was over the palace guard, and down in the bottom jail goes Joseph. For what? For being trustworthy, for being honest, for doing the right thing. I just kind of ask you just a little footnote right here. Anybody just feel like you paid a price this week for doing the right thing? Anybody feel like, you know what, the party went on without me? All my friends went on without me. 
One more time, I'm sitting home this weekend, and I'm just trying to make good choices. I'm just trying to honor God. I'm just trying to be faithful. The business deal went on without me. The whatever went on without me. She said she was going to move back to North Carolina because I wouldn't do this or wouldn't do that. And at some time at the end of the day, you said, you know what? Thank you so much, God. You know, all I did was try to honor you. And look, once more, I'm down here in the jail. Once more, I got left behind. Once more, it didn't work out for me. But Joseph, as it turns out, you know what the scripture said about him? Last week it said, God was with him in the jail. God was with him in the jail. And he gave him favor in the jail. There were two other guys down here. This little poor guy um, who was the baker of the Pharaoh and this guy who was the cupbearer of the Pharaoh. And they both had dreams and Daniel interpreted their dreams. His dream was not a good dream. He was going to leave the story. His dream got a good interpretation and he was going to go back up to Pharaoh to be his cupbearer again. And all Joseph said to him was, hey man, when you get back up there and you're going back up there, that's the way your dream turns out. Will you just remember me? I'll take any job you got up there. I'll slice the ham. I'll do anything. Just get me back up there and out of here. And the cupbearer said, man, you got it. You got it. And the last verse we read in that chapter said, and once the cupbearer got back to Pharaoh, he forgot Joseph. And two years went by until Pharaoh had a dream. And the cupbearer said, there's a guy down in the jail who does great dreams. Let me get him. And they brought, uh, they brought him up. He'd aged a little bit. And he kind of looked like that guy. <laughs> Just working with what I got. And Joseph told Pharaoh the dream. And he became way up above that guy. He became the second in command in awe of Egypt. Not the best path in life. Not anything that anybody here aspires to. Nobody here is taking notes going, dear Lord, please do this. Please, I love this. Please do this in my life. Put me in a hole. Stab me in the back. Sell me out. Abandon me. Uh, put me into captivity. Uh, have me be framed. Uh, have me be put in jail just for being honest and faithful. Yes, that's what I'd love for you to do in my life. But as we pick up this story tonight, that's what's going on. That's really all that matters. These guys are going to be back in the story at some point. But this is really all that matters. This guy has been put in an amazing place. And here's the thing. He knows what's happening. He knows what's happening. That's the most powerful thing in this story. He knows what's happening. And there's one big statement over the message tonight, and Joseph knows what it is right then and right there. And I want you to get a hold of what it is. I want to get a hold of what it is, and this is it tonight. God is always working for his glory and for our good all the time, every day, in every circumstance, in every life, everywhere on the planet, in the good and in the bad, in the joy and in the sorrow, God is always working for his glory and our good. When you see it and when you don't, when you understand it and when you don't understand it, when you can figure it out and when you can't figure it out, God is always working for his glory and for our good all the time, every time, in every circumstance, for every person, in all things and through all things, God is always working. And Joseph knew it right then and right there. He knew it. He knew what was going on. And I want us to grab onto that little phrase and look at a couple of ways it makes us unusual on planet Earth. And the first one is this. It causes us to have an unusual response. An unusual response. When you are mistreated or when you're mistreated and the tables turn and you go from being victim to victor, either way, your response is unusual in this world. Now, I want you to see a couple of things because this whole story is about to turn upside down and uh, it's about to get really, really interesting. And that all starts happening in chapter 42 of Genesis. Read with me uh, the first verse. Um, you know the, 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 the dream. We didn't talk about the dream. So what was the dream? The dream was this. Uh, Pharaoh's dream w was about seven and seven. And Joseph interpreted it this way. He said, what your dream means is there are going to be seven years of plenty in the land where the fields are just going to produce an abundance. 
And then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine in the land where the fields are going to dry up. Now, we get this story. You know, a few years back, maybe people go, what does that mean? We know what that looks like. He said, there's going to be boom time followed by bust. There's going to be plenty for everybody followed by little for everybody. It's going to be the best of days and the worst of days. Seven years of great, seven years of hardship coming after it. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, hey, you figured it out, so I'm going to put you in charge. I want you to make sure that we position ourselves, that we can survive the seven years of famine. And Joseph went about doing that very same thing. So when they had all the plenty come for seven years, it wasn't party hardy, everybody, because life is good. He knew the whole time. We got famine coming, so he built storehouses. He put the grain away. He saved. He didn't live in excess. They didn't live in the bubble. They lived in the vision and the dream that God had given through Joseph, and they prepared for the worst. And after seven years of the greatest harvest ever, the bottom dropped out, not just in Egypt, but in the whole land, even back in Canaan where these cats hung out and where Jacob lived, famine for everybody. And now times are tough, and guess what happens? Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And so guess what? The brothers are now off on a mission to where? To Egypt to buy grain from guess who? From Joseph. They're going to go back to Egypt thinking their brother, who knows what happened to him. For all they know, the Ishmaelites carried him off to who knows where. And probably he's somewhere back in the latter chapters of their memory. They're not thinking, hey, we're going to Egypt and Joseph's going to be there. They're thinking we're going to buy food to bring back to our family so that we can survive through these hard times. And just give you the condensed version because it's several chapters of the story. It's pretty fascinating. You should read it all. The brothers come to Egypt. Joseph sees them, and he's like, no kidding. That's my brothers. Now, they don't recognize him because he's in Pharaoh's palace. He's decked out like he would be as the second in command. And he speaks fluent um, Egyptian at this point. And so he's talking fluent Egyptian, looking like a a Pharaoh's second-in-command kind of dude. And they're dragging up from the fields, looking like they came out of famine, speaking Hebrew. And so he gets an interpreter to talk to them so they won't catch on to who he is. He kind of puts a little attitude in his voice, but he gets right up to him and he says, And who are you guys? Through the interpreter. They speak back in Hebrew. And then he hears them talking among themselves, and he knows what they're saying, but they don't know he knows what they're saying. That's a power position right there. And then he says, well, what have you come here for? You guys come to spy our land? You come to check out what we've got? You guys trying to hatch some kind of plot? They're like, no, 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 no. We just came to get food, man. We, you know, our father sent us here. Who's your father? Is your father alive? Yeah. Anybody else at home? Yeah, we got a little brother. We left him at home. Dad wouldn't let him come. Who's he? Well, he's our littlest one. All right. And so he, he unfolds this whole plan I'll just condense it for us tonight, but he unfolds his whole plan to get the family, the whole family, dad and the little brother and all the rest of them into Egypt. And his plan, of course, succeeds. And before long, Jacob hears that Joseph is alive because Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He pulls them in finally in this whole little, uh, little plot that he hatches, and he pulls them up close. And he lets them know who he is. Look what happened in verse, uh, verse uh, 4 of chapter 45. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. There's an exclamation point there, so I don't really know how to read that. I don't know what his tone was, so I'm not trying to speak into it, but imagine that. You know, they're, they're, they're dealing with this guy. He's kind of, he's put their money in their bags, and then he's gotten their brother, the little brother back from home, and then he's put a, a cup in his bag, and, and he's kind of tricked them all into thinking that, you know, they're really doomed. But finally, he pulls them all in, and he gets them all close, and he goes, guys, in Hebrew, it's me, Joseph, your brother, in case you're not sure which Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, that Joseph. And they're like, Oh, wow. 
I mean, their response is kind of crazy. He says, Now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. I'm telling you, Joseph knew what was going on. Somebody's got to know what's going on if anything unusual is going to happen. That is always the bottom line. If anything unusual is going to happen in your life, in your family, in your business, in your school, in your relationships, you got to know what's going on. Somebody's got to rise up above the internet and go, hey, I know what everybody else is talking about, but I know what's actually going on here because I've been paying attention to God's word and paying attention to God's voice in my life. And I know there is a long arc story of God going on over every little pit and pinnacle that's happening in our lives. He says, I was sitting here ahead of you, verse 6, for two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Isn't that powerful? Now, these guys were dumbfounded. The verse before in verse 3 said, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. So when we know that God is always at work for his glory and our good, it allows us to be free in the moment that the tables turn to have an unusual response. What's usual in this moment is that when you've had the lower hand and then you get the upper hand, what do you do? You give it back to the people who gave it to you when they had the upper hand. You know what's usual is that when you got taken advantage of and all of a sudden the tables are turned, the mediator ruled in your favor, the courts ruled in your favor, somehow circumstances turned in your favor, and then you got in the power position, what's usual to say, hey, congratulations, do you remember how you stuck that stick in my eye? Well, I want you to see how that feels because now I've got the stick and I'm going to stick the stick in your eye. How does that feel? Great. Not so great, huh? Well, thank you very much. One more time. Not so great, huh? How about three times? Not so great. That's normal. When you see that happen in life, you're like, well, that's what people do. When you're taken advantage of, and all of a sudden you go from being victim to victor, and all of a sudden you're second in command in Egypt, and you're now in the power position, and your brothers come begging for food, they're at your mercy, and you give them what they deserve. That's what you give them. That's usual. But what happened in this story is that Joseph said to his brothers, hey, it's me, and don't be afraid, because guess what? God put me here ahead of you. God prepositioned me here in an amazing plan, in an amazing story. And then he went on to love his brothers, show mercy to them, forgive them, and give them a place in Egypt that was almost equal to his. It was totally that gospel power of not repaying evil for evil, but repaying evil with good. It's like, well, Louis, how, how can you do that? I mean, when you've been wronged or you've been taken advantage of, what are we supposed to do? Just sort of shrug that off and sort of act like it never happened? No, you, you, can, you can deal with the reality of what happened, but at some point you have to look above the wrong that was done to you so that you can see the story that's going on above you. At some point we have to lift our, our view up from the wrong that happened around us to say, yes, wrong happened to me, and no, I'm not condoning it. No, I'm not happy about it. I'm not thrilled about it. And he actually called him out on it. He said, you sold me out. I'm not excusing you. I'm telling you what you did. I'm reminding what you did. I know what you did. You know what you did. You sold me out. But that's not the whole story. And then he lifted his view up above them selling him out and said, and above you selling me out, God was at work. And because I know God is at work in my life, it gives me the ability to have a different attitude towards you. And that is the power. That's the power of the gospel. You say, well, that's hard. It is hard, but I'm certainly glad it's possible. I'm glad that that's what Jesus did. Because you know what happened when we sinned against God? We actually sold Christ out. We're the ones who forced Christ towards the cross by our own choices and our own rebellion. 
It was our sin that put him on the cross. And when he came out of the tomb, you know what he did? He turned back to me and he turned back to you and he said, I forgive you. I have the power to do whatever I want to do. But with that power, I'm choosing to offer kindness and grace to you. I think sometimes, you might not agree, it's easier to be gracious when you're the victim. You know, when it didn't work out, you can say, well, you know what, I know God's in charge and I'm just going to trust it to the Lord. And sometimes that's easier than when it does flip around and you become the victor. It's harder sometimes to be gracious in victory than it is in defeat. It's harder to be gracious when you're at the top than when you're at the bottom. But in both places, in both places, the response is the same. And it's an unusual response. The second thing that's true of us when we see that God is always at work is that we understand, and we've talked about this a lot, that God turns evil into good. That God takes the worst and makes the best. I want you to see how this story ended up. Uh, so the brothers come back. The whole family comes back. Jacob comes back. The, the grandkids come back. Everybody comes back to Egypt. But the brothers are kind of thinking, you know what? When dad dies, this whole thing may go crazy. Because you know how sometimes in your family there's that one person still holding everybody together? You know what I'm talking about? Aunt Susie or... Grandma so-and-so or grandpa so-and-so, and they're kind of like the peacemaker of all the people in the family, and you're kind of thinking, as long as they're alive, everything's kind of together, but when they're gone, this thing is going to blow up, you know, this thing is going to turn into all-out war, and I think the brothers were thinking that, they were thinking, Joseph's just putting on an act, all this kindness and this mercy and this forgiveness and this niceness and this love that he's showing us, that's just an act for dad, as soon as dad passes away, we are toast. And so they're worried about that. Well, it comes to the end of the story, and guess what? Jacob dies. And when Jacob dies, the brothers are all flipping out. Chapter 50, verse 15. And this comes down to the real amazing part of Scripture in this story. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong we did him? They're still thinking payback's coming. There's no way it hadn't come already. We were thinking we were going to get payback early, and all we got was mercy. So we're sure when dad dies, it's coming. So they sent word to Joseph saying, this is an awesome story. Your father left these instructions before he died. Hey, Joseph, turns out right before dad died, he left a note. And thank goodness we have it. Reuben got it right at the end, right before the, the cleaning lady came in. And, and here's what it says. This is what dad wrote down. It says... Um, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. You know, I think why he wept? Because he was like, guys, you're the same guys you were when you put me in the pit. We've had all this time together. I've showed you kindness. I've showed you mercy. I've showed you, I've showed you nothing but love and acceptance. I've brought you into Egypt. I've set you and your families up. I've given you everything you need to live. I've basically saved our whole family from famine. And you're still concocting your stories and your plots and your little how are we going to work this all out things. And I think he just was brokenhearted about it. Because the amazing thing here was that Joseph has been under pressure Joseph has been under persecution. Joseph is the one who went through all the hardship. But Joseph's character is just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. His brothers didn't go through any hardship. And their character is getting worse and worse and worse. They're becoming less and less of the people God wanted them to be. He's becoming more and more of the people God wanted them to be. So can we just put another footnote? There's so many in this story. Don't aspire necessarily to a pain-free life. Because sometimes God uses the pain in life to shape our character and to mold us into better people and more godly people where these guys are just out there and they didn't go through all the hardship. But at the end of the day, they're less of the people God wanted them to be, not more of the people God wanted them to be. Their story is still a very sad story and they're very sad people. And Joseph's looking at him like, are you kidding me? After all this and all we've been through, you're still coming up with this? But he knew what was going on. And Joseph came out with it. I love it. 
He came out with the ultimate comeback. You know, you want one, don't you, when you've been wrong? Don't you want one? Do you rehearse it in your head? How many of you have rehearsed it in your head? Anybody? Show of hands. Man, when I get my turn, you better sit down and put a seatbelt on because I'm going to torch you up one side and down the other. I've practiced this in the car. I've rehearsed it in the shower. I've rehearsed it in my room with the door closed. I've dreamed about it. And I'm telling you, I've got it all just right. And I've sharpened all the right things. I've got all the evidence. I've got all the credentials. I've got everything at my disposal. You say that, I'll say this. You come back with that, I'll come back with this. You think you're going to twist that that way? I'm going to twist it back around that way. I am ready for you. And I've got the ultimate shutdown comeback for you. never works out that way, does it? Because A, half the time they don't care. They're not calling. So you just keep telling yourself that story. B, when you get the chance to tell them, you forget it all. You're like, I, oh man, how did that come out? That came out so good when I was, oh, hang on a minute. What is that, what is that last part? Oh, I got it. Hey, listen. You know, it never comes out right. And then sometimes when it comes out right, it doesn't heal and you don't feel better. I'll tell you the way comebacks work best, and I'm just preaching to me, is when you know you don't have the last word, that's when comebacks work best. You're like, well, I'm not giving them the last word. They don't have the last word either. God has the last word. So you don't have to bury them with your barrage and make them feel it because God's going to do that. You're like, ooh, yeah, that's what I'm going to tell them. I'm not going to say a word because God's going to do it. <laughs> that's actually not a bad response. Thank you very much. I had a whole lot to say, and I'd rehearsed it a thousand times, and I just decided, you know what? I don't get the last word, and you don't either. God gets the last word. So I'm going to just try to have as much mercy as I can until God speaks. Joseph had to come back. He was sick and tired of all this craziness from his brothers, all these concocted stories, all of their make-believe fantasy land they'd been living in, all their distrust and mistrust. And so he just pulls back the curtain and says, guys, here's the way this is going down. Are you ready for this? And this is what he says to them in verse 19. He said, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Now, they're shaking in their boots. They're, they got the note, but they're like, uh, we got a note. We got a note from dad. It says, please, 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 please don't kill him. Please don't kill him. Please don't, don't slaughter him. Please don't, don't, don't do anything to us, Joseph. Dad didn't want you to do anything to us. He said right before he died, don't do anything to us. I mean, they're freaking out. And they should have been freaking out. And he said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God, question mark? You can flip that around and make it non-rhetorical. He just made a statement. Hey, guys, don't be afraid. I'm in the place of God. That is revelation, people, when you are in a distressed situation and everybody now is freaking out because the tables are turned and you say, hey, just want to start this little meeting by saying, don't panic because I'm in the place of God. I'm in the place of God. Verse 20, you intended to harm me. So there, he's, he's owning it. He's not, he's not winking it away. He's owning it. He's saying, yeah, you guys intended this to harm me. You know it. I know it. That's reality. We're not sweeping it under the rug. That's what went down back in Dothan. You intended that. You meant that. You did it on purpose. You intended to harm me, but there's always a big, huge but in every one of the stories that comes under the great arc of the redemptive work of God. But God intended it for good. You meant it for evil. Guess what? God meant it for good. You thought you were going to harm me. Guess what? God the whole time knew. He not only were you not going to harm me, but he was going to do something good through what you did. This is the cross, right? We sent Christ to the cross. Men took Christ to the cross. They stripped him down. They beat him within an inch of his life. They nailed him up for the sins of the world. And they thought, there you go. That's your punishment. And God said, hey, you might have meant that for evil, but guess what? You're not in charge of the world. I'm in charge of the world. You don't get the last word. I get the last word. And what you meant for evil, I meant for good. Nail him to a cross. It's the forgiveness of the nations. Crucify him and it's salvation for every person who's ever lived on planet earth. 
I'm the God who takes the worst and turns it into the best. That's what you know. That's what you know under this umbrella that says God is always at work. And I just want you to know that tonight. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you're seeing in your life. God's not finished yet. It may be awful where you are right now. And I do not want to diminish that. I don't want to, I don't want to come along and give you some little platitude and say, oh, don't worry about it. It may just flat out be awful right now. But God is working. And he can take the worst and turn it into the best. The third thing you know under this ark that God is always at work, that God's always at work for his glory and our good, and it is a redemption plan. And it's always happening around us. I want you to see two weird text, because I don't know about you, but did you grow up wondering why there were all these lists of people in the Bible? Did anybody ever wonder about all that? Why do we need to know all these people? I mean, half the Old Testament is a list of people. We can't pronounce most of their names, and it's just like, are you kidding me? And in this story, it's true. In, uh, in chapter 46 of Genesis, it talks about the descendants of Jacob who made it into Egypt. Firstborn was uh, Reuben. Talks about his sons. Verse 10, then there was Simeon. Talks about his sons. Levi and his sons. Judah and his sons. And then there was Issachar and his sons. And Zebulun and his sons. And Gad. I'm glad, aren't you glad you weren't named Gad? And Gad and his sons. And then there was Asher and his sons. And, and, and on and on it went. And, and they're giving you their sons' names. They're giving you all the grandsons' names. Like, you know, for, for Reuben it was uh, Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. You're like, okay, so? Sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul. <laughs> Did he keep going? Okay. You want some more? Sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, I'll give you more then. That's cool. I know you don't want me to stop. The sons of Judah... You ready for these? Were Ur, Onan, Shelah, or Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. Oh, parentheses, but Er and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. And then of one of the grandsons, they even listed two great-grandsons. Of one of the grandsons named Perez, who was the son of Judah, his sons were named Hezron and Hamuel. Can I get an amen? Does anybody feel encouraged? Does anybody care? You care, trust me. Trust me, you care. This is Joseph's story. And I know his family's here tonight, so i got to be careful the way I say this, and I'll try to be. This Joseph story has the biggest detour in it you've ever seen. Right in the middle of the whole Potiphar thing and the, the Ishmaelites and the whole Joseph being sold into slavery thing, the story just goes left for a while. Just crazy left turn. And, and all of a sudden it focuses on one of the brothers named Judah. Remember the one who said, let's sell him and not kill him, that guy? The story just focuses on him for a minute. And it says Judah went back to Cana. Judah married this woman in Cana. And he started having these kids. And the first kid that he had was a terrible kid. And God was really displeased with this kid. He offended God. That was error, the first one we saw. And God took him out. Boom, he's gone. It didn't say that in the parentheses, but we see that in another context. He's out. And then he, when that guy, that son dies, are you with me? His wife now is a widow. Her name's Tamar, or Tamar. So Judah marries a woman, has a son. The son is evil. The son dies. And now the son's wife, Tamar, or Tamar, she now is a widow. And so Judah says to the second son down the line, you got to take care of your brother's wife, Tamar. Just stay with me. I'll try to stay with me too. you got to take care... Of Tamar. You following this story? A lot of you go to Christian school, you're already ahead of me, but some of you are like, what is going on here? What kind of detour are we on? This is amazing. 
And so the second son down the line doesn't do it. And it's really graphic, and I'm not going to tell you how. You'll have to go read that for yourself, but it's pretty crazy. It's in the Bible. He does not take care of his brother's wife. And so God takes him out because that's one of the things you do in the economy of God. When your brother's married and your brother's gone, you take care of your brother's wife. And the second son's now gone. So we got two sons gone, and we still got a, a widow. And we got Judah and his wife. Well, Judah's wife died. And later in the story, just stay with me, Judah is traveling to a certain place, and Tamar, the widow, knows he's coming. And so she takes off her widow's outfit, and she puts on a, a prostitute's outfit and stands by the entrance of the city. You're like, this isn't the Bible? Yeah. And when Judah comes, he hires her. And he has a relationship with her. And she gets pregnant. He doesn't know who she is because she's covered her face and disguised herself. And now everything's messed up. So in time, she becomes pregnant, obviously. Everyone knows she's pregnant. And she's called out in public as being pregnant. And Judah decides that he's going to kind of pull the religious card and says, well, she should pay for that. And she says, well, I, before, I, before I pay for it, I'd just like to remind you that I, I actually took your cord that you left behind uh, when you were at my house. And how, how did I get this unless you were there? These are your kids. And it's like, uh-oh. Judah, are you with me? It got so quiet in here. <laughs> Judah, who was one of Jacob's sons and chose to sell his brother Joseph, took a detour when his two kids died, actually ended up in a crazy relationship with his daughter-in-law whereby she got pregnant and she had twins. You're like, what's your point? Well, the point is, is that when you open the New Testament, are you ready for this? The New Testament is the good news, people. Did you know that? The Old Testament is the bad news, and the New Testament is the good news. It doesn't actually work that way, but that's the way I heard it when I was growing up. All the old stuff is gone, and all the new stuff is coming. All the bad stuff and all the terrible stuff is done, and now all the new, fantastic stuff is coming. And the New Testament starts with the New Testament, and that's what it says, so you know what you're reading. You turn the page, and it starts with the Gospel of Matthew. Anybody on board with me? And now we're in the New Testament kids. We're to the good part of the story, kids. This is where it's really going to get awesome and the news is going to be fantastic. And it opens up, guess what? A genealogy of Jesus. Wow. Where do you sign up for that? Mom, dad, get me to church. I'm going to youth group tonight. It is the genealogy of Jesus. It is going to be life-changing. I'm so excited. It's the way the New Testament opens. Our New Testament book opens with a genealogy. People from outside the church are like, are you kidding me? You ca I came here for that? I came to church and you're going to read me a genealogy? I don't even know my own genealogy. Why do I care about Jesus' genealogy? Just, just tell me you came. Born in Bethlehem. Great. Fantastic. That's all I need to know. I don't really need to know the whole family tree. Like, we want you to know the whole family tree. It says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You excited? Cool. Well, I'm just going to read a little. Abraham, verse 2, was the father of Isaac. You remember him? And Isaac was the father of who? Jacob. And Jacob was the father of who? Judah. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. When the kids came out, it says when the, the twins came, one of them stuck his fist out first. This is in Genesis 38. And the, the, the maid servant put a, a little string around the fist to say that's the first one that came out because that's the one that's going to get the blessing. You want to be firstborn back in Genesis. So the first thing that came out was a little fist, 
and they tied a little uh, thread around it. But the other brother said, no way. And he pulled the first brother back with the thread, and he went over the first brother, and he came out first. His name was Perez, which means breakthrough. That's what it means. The name means breakthrough. And he said, you know, uh, all due respect, Zara, that's a cool little thing they tied around your wrist, but I'm going out first, and out came Perez. And so it says his sons were Perez and Zara, whose mother was Tamar, but the lineage doesn't go on with the one that had the thread and the fist. Uh, the, the lineage goes on with the breakthrough, and Perez now is the father of Hezron. Remember, he was one of the grandkids we mentioned back there, and Hezron was the father of Ram. You keep going down a little bit, verse 6, and Jesse was the father of King David, so he's in this lineage. David was the father, father of Solomon. Then look, verse 12, after the exile to Babylon. Remember that whole thing with the boys of Babylon? That's in the genealogy. Lists some more people. Comes down to verse 16, and Jacob, another Jacob, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Christ came. And two things you need to know about that. And the first one is this. Christ came from a messed up story. God made sure that in Scripture, he included the names of Judah and Perez because they were part of the genealogy of Jesus. And you could have just said, well, that's kind of cool. But then he said, no, it's, it's more than kind of cool. I'm going to stick Genesis 38 in here so you'll know this is a scandalous story. I'm going to put Genesis 38. I don't have to put Genesis 38 here, and you never know. But I'm putting it in here so that you will know that Judah, you know Judah, the tribe of Judah, these sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. When they went into the promised land after the Exodus, their territories were called by their names. And Judah got a territory, and in that territory is a city called Jerusalem. And just south of it a little bit is a city called Bethlehem of Judah. Not to be confused with the Bethlehem in Israel to the northern kingdom. And so in the territory, of Judah is Jerusalem where Christ died and Bethlehem where Christ was born. And even in Revelation 5, 5, when it talks about the risen, reigning Christ standing in the multitude of heavens, it says, behold, the lion of what? Of the tribe of Judah. Judah, a guy that sold his brother. Judah, a guy who hired a prostitute. Judah, a guy who got his daughter-in-law pregnant. Judah, a guy who wanted to pass judgment on her, but at the end of the day said, oh my goodness, these are my kids. Messed up, jacked up world. And through Judah, God brought Jesus. God takes the worst and makes the best. God works through our messed up, jacked up lives, people. And when you start the story, I got to tell you, there's a woman dressed up acting like a prostitute in our story. This is probably a good time, isn't it, to just go ahead and step down off our high horse and lower this whole thinking that just because we're all sitting in church, we're better than anybody else. We're messed up, and we come from messed up, but God is bigger than messed up, and God works through the mess to bring salvation. So don't buy the lie tonight that you're too far gone. For God to restore your life to the beauty that he's been dreaming about. There is not too much water under the bridge. He'll build another bridge at stream. There is not too much damage been done. Because God speaks things into existence out of nothing. And he can recreate what the locusts have eaten. God is not finished and there's no story in this building tonight that, that, that puts him off. There's no story in this building that puts him off. You're like, man, I had no clue that was even in the Bible. No kidding. 
You know why? Because somehow we've made this whole thing sound like we're a bunch of really pretty decent people, really doing pretty decent. We just need a little nudge from God to make it into heaven. And that is not true. We are all broken down people. We are all wicked people. We all have crazy thoughts. And we've all done crazy things. And there's all kinds of stories in this room right now. Right on. There are all kinds of crazy stories in this room. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not offended by your story. I don't approve of what you did. I don't condone what you did. I'm not happy about what you did, but I'm telling you what, I'm not looking at you going, well, too bad, you burned too many bridges, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to work with you. He's saying, hey, I've got a, a prostitute in my genealogy, I can restore you. I've got a guy who had a relationship with his daughter-in-law and had illegitimate kids in the genealogy, so I can work with you, and I can bring you back and put you in the place that God wants you to be. God is always at work, people. I'm telling you, he's always at work. I mean, when crazy, messed up, jacked up stuff is going on, God is still at work. I love that truth tonight. And the last thing, and I'll just close with this one, the last thing you see under that is that our faithfulness matters to future generations. And you live in that. When you know there's a huge arc above you that says God is always at work for his glory and for our good. When Joseph said to his brothers, um, don't be afraid, I'm in God's place. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Listen to what he said. He said, to bring about this present result. I think this is maybe the most powerful words that any man could utter in the story. Verse 20, you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. And what is that? The saving of many lives. I love Joseph. And I'm so glad he was faithful in the pit. Because I am standing here because of him. Isn't that amazing? People, we're not talking about some Old Testament fairy tale. We're not talking about some vacation Bible school story. We're talking about a guy that when you see him in heaven, you are going to put your arms around him, and you are going to say, thank you so much for being faithful, for using your gifts even in the jail, for interpreting the dreams like God had given you the ability to, for rising up to the place, what? That you could store away the grain for the seven years of plenty. So in the seven years of famine, your brothers didn't die. Because if your brothers had died, Jesus wouldn't have come. If Judah had died in the famine, there would be no genealogy of Jesus. It was Judah's salvation brought by Joseph's faithfulness that allowed me to have a Savior named Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem. So when Christ is born, the angels sing glory to God. And there's a little footnote in history that says glory to God, peace on earth among men. But also, thank you, Joseph. I don't think Joseph knew when he was down in the pit. Well, I'm just going to hang out down here for a while because a couple thousand years from now, Louis is going to get up and tell my story at Passion City Church on Sunday night on, uh, on uh, October the 30th at Passion City at the 5 o'clock. They're going to tell my story. So I hate it down here as a 17-year-old stuck down here abandoned and stabbed in the back by my brothers. But man, I'm telling you what, when they tell my story, it's going to be pretty awesome. I just think when he, he was in that pit, somehow God gave him the sense to know what was really going on. And as day after day unfolded, the story got clearer and clearer to Joseph, and he went, God has a plan here. And so he told his brothers, hey, here's what really happened. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about what this present outcome. And the present outcome is the saving of many, 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 many people. So how many of you know Christ? Can I just see a show of hands? Do you know Christ? Let's keep him up for a second. That's all because of Joseph. That's all because of Joseph. God prepositioned him for your salvation. Yeah, you can put him down. God put him in place before the famine for you. How awesome. 
And when the story of heaven is told, when the story of heaven is unfolded, the whole story of heaven will be the story of faithfulness of people. And Joseph's story will be a long, long, long story to be told. I think people always say, you know, what, um, what's heaven about? I don't really know. I can't speak to that authoritatively. Well, is it going to be boring? I guarantee it won't be boring. Is it going to be? How, it's going to be forever. I mean, come on. It's got to be. What's going to happen forever? You know how long it's going to take to tell all the stories? And how long it's going to take, like, to tell the story of Joseph? Because in Joseph's story is everybody. His faithfulness affected future generations. His brothers, their kids, and their kids, and their kids, who just so happened to be the descendants of the father of faith and the ancestors of the Savior of the world. And that's where you are today. And the choices that we make under this great truth that God is always at work, the choices that we make, they're not just affecting you. The choices, the decisions, the faithfulness, and the faith in your life tonight, it's not just about you. It's affecting future generations. You're like, well, you mean my kids? Maybe your kids, but maybe one of your kids is going to be the most influential person in the most influential nation who's going to affect the nations and then the generations and the generations to come. I'm always stuck on what Shelly said in her message a few weeks ago when she said, your faith is not just about you. Your choice of faith tonight is not just about you. But that choice of faith that you make tonight is about people you've never even dreamed of and the way God wants to use you in that story. You know, the heart of it that you've got to get your head around to be that person who can be in a pit and still believe God has a plan, who can be in a pit and still believe that God is working so that I'm going to keep being faithful because my faithfulness is playing out to people I'm not going to ever even meet, to generations I may not even know. The heart of it all is just to keep your head around that idea that it's not about you. You know, when we become the victim, that's the first thing we want to do is say, well, I can't believe this is happening to, you fill in the blank, to God, why are you doing this to God, I was faithful, so why are you letting this happen to God, do you know that they mistreated me. God, why, why didn't you stop them when they were hurting me? And, 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 and all those questions are relevant questions. All those questions are real questions. But at the end of the day, they all end with the wrong word. They all end with me, which puts all the focus on me, makes it all about me. I was wronged. I was this. I was the other. I'm stuck here. This is what happened to me. Me, 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 me. And we have to lift our head up above what happened to us and say, but God, but you have a story. I know what happened to me, but I'm, I'm asking, what are you doing? And then the same thing when you're at the top. As soon as you get to the top of the peak to say, you know what? I'm not at the bottom anymore. I'm at the top now. And guess what? It's still not about you. It's still not about you. It wasn't about you at the bottom, and it's not about you at the top. It wasn't about you when you were the victim, and it's not about you when you're the victor. It's not about you. It's about someone greater than you. And when all the applause of life and all the power that you have and all the whatever control you got, when all that's passed away, is anybody going to remember you? And if Jesus doesn't come thousands of years from now, are there going to be people standing up and in their story they're going to say, that lady right there and her faithfulness is the reason why we're all here today. And you want that. You want that prize in heaven. You want to just be bumping into people in heaven. You want to have them tell your story in heaven and have people coming up from all over the planet going, uh-huh, uh-huh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You don't even know how your generosity touched me. You don't even know how your prayers touched me. You don't know how when you were faithful in that moment where you could have gone left or right, you don't know how that impacted me. You don't know how our whole lineage was saved by your choice and your faithfulness. So the message is, is beautiful today. It's beautiful tonight that if you're jacked up and messed up, guess what? God's not finished, 
and there is a place for you in his redemption story. But that's not our first choice, is it? So you're going to run out today and go, well, man, there's a crazy story in the Jesus genealogy, so let's just go party as hard as we can this weekend and give God something to work with. Come on, let's just go for it, man. This is awesome. God takes the worst and turns it into the best, so, man, tonight is going to be the worst, and we'll just see how God uses it. That's not our hope. If that's where you are, then there is hope over your life tonight. And don't let the enemy tell you any different. But the hope of our lives, the goal of our lives, is to be faithful so that the generations to come will be able to celebrate the Savior because of our lives.